Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the Wonky Show. How do you get sacked as Secretary of State? We'll also talk no detriment, safety nets, skills and what students get out of their education. It's all coming up. The the real issue for me is not that universities will find a way to smooth things out, whether it's safety nets or or fiddling in exam boards. It's that the inequalities between students who've relatively thrived through the pandemic and students who haven't are incapable of remediation. A a simple extension or or measuring 80 credits rather than 120 or whatever, none of that will actually help address that inequality. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to pick us up after a punishing start to the year, as ever, three of the country's top brass thinkers on higher education. Uh, In London, Jonathan Simmons is Director at Public First. Jonathan, your highlight of the week? I think uh, having to listen to Gavin Williamson for what seemed like about 68 hours at the Select Committee yesterday. (laughs) Uh, More of that later. Uh, In Edinburgh, Sue Rigby is Vice-Chancellor at Bath Spa University. Sue, your highlight of the week? Well, actually, we've been having a whole series of meetings, open meetings with our students who were exercised about rent and no detriment policies and so on. And their response has been phenomenal. Uh, And it's really reminded me that, you know, the only thing that matters in all of this actually is the people we're teaching. Brilliant. And in London, Debbie McVitie is editor of Wonky. Debbie, your highlight of the week. Uh, it's got to be our Skills to Thrive event, Jim, uh, on Tuesday. Uh, and it reminded us that even at the height of a pandemic, you can still get 300 people together to talk about how to develop and support students. Uh, and that's really heartening. And it was a great event. Brilliant. So, yes, we start this week with some high politics. Gavin Williamson has found himself engulfed in yet another policy. Natalie Imbruglia over free school meals. Uh, Jonathan, how do you lose your job as Secretary of State these days? Well, I mean, and, and, and such was the title of a, of a BBC online piece, uh, which Sean Coughlin posted yesterday, which is essentially why has Gavin Williamson not, not yet lost his job? How does he cling on? I mean, I think the, the broad context to this is that we are, in normal times, we would have had a reshuffle by now. Uh, so the government did a reshuffle last in February 2020. Uh, we're we're pretty much due one now. Uh, and Gavin Williamson has actually been in post since July uh, 2019. So he was in, in, in space before the election. So he has actually statistically outlasted the average tenure of a Secretary of State, which is just over 12 months. Uh, Michelle Donnellan has been in post since February last year. So again, as a junior minister, you'd expect all things being equal for there to be a reshuffle around about now. And it's always difficult to think about when you do a reshuffle because actually as a prime minister, almost every prime minister in their memoirs says that they hate doing reshuffles because it essentially means you have to fire some of your colleagues and they then go and sit on the back benches and they have the potential to cause you significant issues. And despite the fact that Boris Johnson has a, an 80 seat majority, it's not that secure. Uh, there are various uh, groups bubbling around on the Tory backbenches who are Disappointed with him over, uh, well, Brexit, of course, the famous European research group. We now have the COVID research group. There's the Northern research group. 
there's the research group of research groups, uh, but not yet. But that will surely come. But so so he doesn't. You know, most prime ministers don't really like having to make changes unless they have to. And uh, the one thing we know about Boris Johnson is that he's also pretty much temperamentally unsuited to delivering bad news. And I think we've all seen that over the course of the pandemic. That actually taking tough decisions, unless you really really have to, unless it is quite quite literally a matter of life and death. Uh, this is not a prime minister who likes doing so. So the, the, the temptation is to just hold off on the reshuffle. Uh, and despite the fact that everyone sort of thought we might get one in the spring, it might now not be until later on in the summer. And that, that does create some issues because uh, Gavin Williamson is not the most popular Secretary of State uh, with the higher education sector, with the school sector, uh, with conservative voters uh, or with voters in general. Um, but apart from that, everyone likes him. Uh, Michelle Donnellan, uh, there is no, there's no polling data on junior ministers. She seems, you know, to be about about average in terms of, of of how university ministers are sort of respected. But there is, I think, a feeling that the government needs to re-pivot and adjust. And if, God willing, COVID figures start to get slightly better, the vaccine starts to take effect, um, I think the government is very, very keen indeed to use the spring sort of March April May period to do the budget to announce a Queen's speech and to really start to define what Johnsonism if such a thing can exist now of course the thing that's wrapped up in this is what what happens with all the big HE and indeed FE items which are on the agenda so we have the skills white paper of course which is promised to have been out every week since about the autumn we have the auger response formally we have of course the favorite of wonky the 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 review of TEF the Pierce review and my understanding at the moment is that these are all slated on the books as one of the big first things that is going to come out when they do decide to move to domestic reset. So at the moment, it is penciled in for the end of January. I think, in truth, that entirely depends on how quickly the hospitalisation figures come down because they're not going to want to make a big announcement if they don't get sufficient media and political headspace for it. But I think if, if if it's that soon... They're clearly not going to do a reshuffle before then. They're going to want Gavin Williamson and Michelle Donnellan and indeed Gillian Keegan to front these up. So I would say still my best guess is that we'd expect a reshuffle in March. uh, And when we do, I would expect most of the current personnel in DfE to be uh, finding employment elsewhere. Well, fascinating stuff. Now, um, as well as that kind of big macro question about um, the, the the kind of reset outputs, uh, there's a bunch of contemporary issues about kind of higher education, aren't there, Debbie? And um, uh, there weren't many questions at Education Committee on HE. Um, many of the newer universities, especially, do not have financial reserves um, and are and, and are now struggling financially. And there is a concern that the uh, that this, it's the survival of the fittest in terms of the university sector. This is also a problem for um, students. I've got two sitting in my house now who can't go back to university, but are paying high accommodation costs. Um, what will you be doing for the students, but also for the financial security of our university and academic sector? So, um, uh, so, so we'll always be. Uh, we saw action undertaken in terms of supporting universities. So, how they can give that additional support for students before Christmas? Uh, we're uh, obviously reviewing that uh, currently, as the Prime Minister uh, uh, mentioned the uh, other day. Uh, you're right to highlight that there are some uh, institutions, uh, institutions of all ages, uh, that uh, are potentially in a place where they may find themselves in financial difficulty. Uh, this is why we set up a restructuring regime uh, if universities are in a position uh, where they're facing financial challenges so that we actually have a 
uh, uh, we have a, a program in place to support those universities if they're facing some real challenges. That's already been established. It stands ready to go. We've been in a very fortunate position that despite some of the concerns that people had about uh, collapse within the university sector, that hasn't materialised. But we uh, have been very aware that we've got to have that contingency in place if institutions, if universities do find themselves in difficulty. Uh, thank you. Just on that, the, um, the support offered to my local university was for management consultants to come in and tell them how to manage and to be given a one year loan, not a grant, um, which which wasn't what they needed. They know how to manage their university and they need a grant, not a loan to cover their lost costs. Um, so I hope that that will be extended to uh, something which suits them more and enables them to continue because they've had to have major cuts to staff. And, and you know, we, we do recognise that universities will have to restructure themselves um, in order to be able, some, some universities will have to face uh, restructure how, how what they offer, how they run, how they're managed as part of that. But, you know, we, we've been clear that actually there is a regime where uh, universities are in a place where they aren't going to be able to continue. Uh, we have a mechanism uh, working with the, uh, the Treasury as to how we manage those uh, um, those potential uh, problems within the sector. And I think that's the right approach to do. But what we're wanting to do is avoid universities getting into that place. And that's why we put the other measures in terms of how we change the financing and the additional support for universities, including in terms of extra support through research that has helped so many universities. Thank you. Yeah. So on the on the on the key questions of whether students' uh, costs should be should be reimbursed, um, given that they most of them now have to stay at home this term, um, he was he was unclear. And and likewise on the question of uh, the you know the, co- the costs that continue to accrue to universities of coping with the COVID nineteen pandemic, likewise unclear. Um, there was some chat about the the restructuring regime, and and to the best of our knowledge, we don't think anyone's actually had to go through that. So um, to some extent, uh, it may be that universities are sort of sort of. Uh, Frightened into 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 a position of of, of not uh, not articulating the kind of uh, financial challenges that they're facing, less less that they be they be kind of put, put under management consultancy and and required to you know combine with their local FE college and and you know sack all their all the subs in their SU. Um, so it's yeah, it's not kind of looking like we're going to see. And, and I think what, I mean one of the takeaways perhaps from that is is you know. It, some and maybe Sue can speak to this. Some some universities, I think, kind of are keen to wait for the latest guidance from DFE to kind of clarify situations and matters, and based on the kind of performance of the education secretary at the committee yesterday, I don't know if that's necessarily the best strategy for, uh, you know, get to getting on with it and, and through trying to do the best you can under, under adverse circumstances may, may be a better way forward. Yeah. Now, Sue, so, so you've just uh, joined the board of Student Minds. Congratulations. Do you uh, do you remember when Damien Hines announced a student mental health task force, given that's what Gavin Williamson also did yesterday? Yes, it's one of the things I wake up at night screaming when I remember it. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I mean, what, what strikes me is is that there's just a fundamental disconnect between the amount of time it takes to sort out problems and the amount of time the government wants it to take to sort out problems. Uh, and where the sector, I think, is admirable is when governments can set out very clearly what they want and then apply relentless pressure to get it. And universities adapt. That, that's why they survive. But where you've got this sense that the government will do nothing and then sort out problems through edict in a fraction of the time it actually takes to make a difference. I, I think folk like me who are trying to run the universities become close to despair. <laughs> I mean, Jonathan, what's going wrong here? What is what is the, uh, is this about ministers? Is this about the department? Is it about the kind of superstructure that is suddenly being put to the test? Why is why is DFE? Why does DFE keep kind of stumbling into these crises? 
I think it's I think it's a combination of all of those things. So the department, I mean, it is worth remembering that the department is a lot smaller than it used to be. And a lot of civil servants were seconded out of DfE a couple of years ago to, to help staff various Brexit-related tasks across Whitehall and haven't haven't yet fully returned. And obviously, COVID has put a huge strain on the department because you need a very large number of staff doing uh, operational work and, and sort of, in, in a sense, almost day-to-day first response style work. So DfE is running almost a certainly used to be running almost a sort of 24-7 command centre structure. And that does take a lot of people away from the day-to-day responsibility. I think the other issue is, as we've discussed before, moving higher education into the DfE hasn't helped the higher education sector because it has, uh, you know, higher education is clearly nowhere near the top of the DfE's institutional priority lists. Um, You know, if you were to draw up a list of the top six or seven things that Kevin Williamson is worried about at the moment, I don't think there'd be a single higher education issue in there. So it just means that that, that by necessity, it falls off the radar. Michelle Donnellan, you would imagine, finds it harder to get issues that she needs Kevin Williamson sign off than than, uh, she would have necessarily had in Bayes. And uh, and I think the other thing is that as as a... You know, the DfE is not making these decisions in isolation. So when it's whether it's decisions about you know, the extent to which we do lateral flow testing in universities or when universities can uh, return to -to face-to-face teaching and for which groups of subjects, you're trading off the DfE's perspective versus the Department of Health and Public Health England perspective. And probably for the right thing, uh, Public Health England and the Department for Health, and in particular, you know, Chief Medical Officer and Chief Scientific Officer, are the dominant players in Whitehall at the moment. They are getting their way on, on almost everything because we are first and foremost in a public health crisis and what that means is that when the two departments or the two issues butt up against each other as we've seen with school closures and indeed with some university issues it tends to be that after some prevarication the public health perspective uh wins and what that means is is that the consequence of that is that universities have shorter periods of notice in order to respond to things because it, the, the government has not given itself sufficient time to work through these competing perspectives and decisions get made very late and, and 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 just on that, I mean, Debbie, the 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 one, I mean, the other little nugget we picked up this week was that uh, Michelle Donnellan had been on the QAA and uh, P- um, PSRB call the other day, um, and said it's really really important that people are able to kind of graduate this year and enter the labour market. So that kind of political steer about you know keep to the original timetable, business as usual, that's at least something that uh, you know is being exhorted on providers but it's actually quite difficult mm. i mean that, that does sound to me a little bit like magical thinking um particularly in the context of and i think we'll pick this up a little bit later but you know in the in the context of students who simply for you know for very good reasons of you know relating to you know public health and safety have not been able to complete you know some, some aspects of their course and i would you know i think if you know, if you if you took a kind of snap poll of the public and students and, and you know and, and universities too, probably if it was a choice between saying let's find ways to, to get these students the practical experience that they need versus um, you know sort of allowing them to graduate and and, and to look for jobs without it, you know on balance I think probably finding ways to to, to fix that is is the better choice. Um, and simply just kind of rehearsing the mantra that you know that 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 quality should 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 be sustained and delivery should be sustained and uh, students should graduate. It doesn't really take account of, you know, the reality on the ground. And of course, it's going to be really lots of variation between universities and courses. And that's not a kind of, you know, universal statement about what's going on. But, uh, you know, it, it's got to be taken account of. And I do think that this reflects 
you know, it, it's, it's hard for us to speak to the private conversations that may be going on with ministers and with civil servants behind the scenes. But I mean, I know I'd never get the sense from the, from the department or the government in general that there is a strong attention paid to the views of stakeholders in, in, in making some of these decisions. And that may be a product of bandwidth, just too many decisions and not enough, you know, not enough time. It may be the stakeholder feedback is actually not all that useful in terms of they're just saying, we don't know, tell us please, or whatever it is. But, you know, there, there does seem to be this real disconnect between the way the government is talking about what is going on and what we know is going on. Um, you know, through our conversations with universities and with students' unions. Yeah, and and look on that, Sue. I mean, if you'll forgive the loaded question, it, it, let's imagine that by the end of the month, a major program of reform of the tertiary education sector is launched. Is it a good time for that? <laughs> I don't think that's a lady question at all. No, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to ask. Wait, right? um, I think I think to, to load an answer, there's never a good time to announce that kind of stuff. Um, particularly if the... Yeah, but surely there are some times that really are worse, right? <laughs> well, um, there are times in the UK cycle when it would be nice not to announce that fees are going to change, for example. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think in truth, what we're missing is clarity about what is wanted and so there's a real fear in the sector that responses that the government is is making, whether they're short term around lateral flow testing or graduating on time or long term around the shape of the sector, that they're driven by finances and by a, 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 an asymmetrical understanding of what the sector has to offer, rather than being kind of driven by clarity about the graduate workforce that the country will need to recover from the pandemic. And Things like the Augur Review, for example, are completely out of date now because they were pre-pandemic. In fact, almost all of the thinking around universities is out of date because it's pre-pandemic. So my sense would be that the right thing to do is start again from saying, what does the country need in the next decade to get over the biggest financial challenge that it's probably ever faced since we started collecting taxes? Um, and then what shape of university sector and shared university college sector do you need to deliver that actually once the bones of that are in place it would be possible to move at any time of year towards the solution but using these inherited policies that have a smack of wanting to save money rather than produce skills makes me very very nervous about the outcome you go sue rigby calls for a new post 18 review of higher education funding <laughs> um, no but look seriously you jonathan, first. Look, jonathan seriously i mean there's nothing you know some people can argue about the conclusions of the auger review but it was a fairly serious piece of work that looked in depth at a set of issues have the issues now changed so fundamentally that you know this 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 the, the danger is that the response to it amounts to retrofitting and the retrofitting might not work so i think there's a at the moment, I think we as a sector, and including the government, would find it hard to distinguish signal from noise. So I don't think I could say, hand on heart, what if we did nothing, what universities will look like in, let's say, three years' time. Are we going to be in a world where there has been some things fundamentally shifted? Are we going to be in a world when some things come back to normal, pre-pandemic? Uh, we just don't know. And as a point of principle, I then find it quite hard to make a justification for big structural changes because if you don't know the situation that you're if you don't know your base case and you don't really have an idea as to what you're trying to move to almost by definition you're going to have bad policy being made that's just a sort of theoretical point so i do think there is a danger that well i mean we, we just don't know about auger do we so so as you say it was a, it was a very very i thought it was a very sound piece of theoretical analysis um are bits of it out of date? Certainly. Are bits of it still relevant? Probably. But I don't know which bits. Um, I think the other complicating factor here, of course, is that <clears throat> the government has no money. Um, you know, we, we have spent untold billions of pounds correctly 
propping the economy up for the last year and we will continue to spend billions of pounds through to at least the first half of this year until the economy does more or less return to normal uh, and it's undoubtedly going to be true that in the budget in March we commit to further billions of pounds. There is a real issue, we can't wish it away, there's a real issue about how we do finance higher education uh, and the, the right combination of fees versus taxpayer support. But again, because we don't have the, the structural environment to, 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 to make the decision yet about are fees going to be seven and a half, are fees going to be six, are they going to be nine and a bit, are they going to be zero? It, it's just we don't have the levers and we don't have the data and we don't have the bandwidth to be making these serious, serious decisions at the moment. Apart from that, it's a brilliant time to do a review of tertiary education uh, and I can't wait to read it when it all comes out. But I suspect, and, and you know, everyone is going to get very excited about it and, and, and correctly think about what it means to their institutions, I suspect that if it is launched at the end of this month, it will pretty quickly be superseded by events, at least by the end of this calendar year, if not more, when we do have a spending review, when we do have a new ministerial team. So whilst I would never urge a sector to completely ignore a big major review that comes out of DfE, I suspect this might not quite have the impact it was thought to have when, for example, Orga was commissioned uh, all that time ago. And, and Jonathan, just before we move on, uh, the speculation at the weekend I thought was interesting. So Kemi Badenock, uh, Oliver Dowden, who, who might replace Gavin? And what might the implications be? Well, I, I mean, I think if it's Kemi Badenoch, uh, then we are just going to get war on woke uh, ramped up to 11. Uh, that is essentially what she is known for. Uh, and I think Oliver Dowden is almost a complete opposite. Oliver Dowden is a Damien Hines style, calm, technocrat, Nicky Morgan style. Kemi Badenoch is a, you know, playing to the base Secretary of State. Um, and so if I had to guess, I'd say it's much more likely to be an Oliver Dowden type um, I've, I've long thought that Anne-Marie Trevelyan might be uh, the, 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 the new replacement, the former Diffid Secretary of State, who obviously lost her job when Diffid was abolished. Um, I suspect we are in for a world of slightly more calm and conciliatory Secretaries of State because the, one of the major jobs for the DfE is to uh, rebuild stakeholder relationships. Uh, and I suspect that that's what number 10 will go for um, as part of this broader, you know, Cummings less slightly more conciliatory domestic reset they're going to try and push down on. Well, exciting times. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. My name is Jovan Byford, and I'm a senior lecturer in psychology at The Open University. My article, Understanding the IHRA Definition of Antisemitism, makes a positive case for the adoption of the IHRA definition by UK universities. In the article, I argue that the IHRA definition is far less controversial than its opponents would lead us to believe, and that the objections, most notably that the definition poses a threat to free speech and academic freedom, stem from a misunderstanding of the content, history and purpose of the IHRA definition. The definition of antisemitism addresses a very real problem, namely the fact that today, antisemitism that manifests itself in debates over Israel and Palestine often remains unrecognized and is allowed to persist unchallenged, including on university campuses. So, the adoption of the definition should not be seen as a sinister threat to academic freedom, but a positive development in the context of the broader endeavour to improve equality and diversity within higher education. Hi, I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and it's the start of a new term, so I'm here to remind you that the Wonky Daily is now back in your inboxes at 8am every morning. The Daily is our way of helping you navigate the constantly shifting policy goings on and to make sense of it. How universities are covered in the mainstream media, what policymakers, politicians and government departments are doing across the UK. The latest research reports, consultations, sector agency movements and right now, I'm sorry to say, the ever-changing COVID crisis and what it means for universities. 
it's a good time to sign up as we're also expecting a fresh wave of higher education policy from Westminster to emerge imminently. Brace, brace for all of that and make sure you're getting the daily to stay ahead of the curve. Head to the form at wonky.com daily and if your university already subscribes, you'll be added automatically. Otherwise, we'll be in touch with how you can take out a free trial. That's wonky.com daily. We'll see you in the morning. Now, my student spidey senses have been tingling since before Christmas over calls for no detriment or student safety net policies. And uh, partly thanks to uh, quite a successful campaign, actually, from the tab, uh, those calls have intensified over the past couple of weeks, with the Russell Group taking the unusual step of issuing a statement, swiftly followed by a counter-statement from Russell Group student union leaders. Now, um, where's all of this at, Sue, all of these discussions about kind of safety nets and no detriment and, you know, what's going on uh, on on the ground? ground well it, it is an absolutely fascinating time to be interested in how you assess the outcomes of a degree isn't it that's, <laughs> yeah. that's all four of us are really really enjoying this a, a great deal um we we have a problem and it's a much bigger problem than we had in the summer last year when we went into lockdown first time and that is that students have been working in these atypical conditions now for the best part of 12 months and the the two outcomes from that are on the one hand, it's getting much, much harder for students who are struggling at the beginning to carry on. And any any degree of, of no detrimental support can't accommodate for the fact that a minority of students are finding it almost impossible to carry on with their studies because they were in suboptimal conditions beforehand and they've just stayed there. You know, when things are bad, they don't automatically and spontaneously get better. And there's only so much that universities can do to help with that. The other problem, which is more where the no detriment policies come in, are that for many students, we have no measure pre-pandemic of their function and and their capacities at the level of study that they're now being assessed on. So when we went into lockdown to begin with, we had a clean semester of attainment at the level that the student was at. And we could realistically look at that and say, surely in the second semester, a student would have been unlikely to do worse than they did before. Now we have no such level. So we would be in the absolutely kind of disreputable position were we to do no detriment again of saying your performance a year ago when you were studying at a different level is what we'll use to guarantee a baseline of performance now your GCSEs guarantee that you can't do worse than that at A level Um, given that many students actually improve as they go through university I don't know to what extent that would actually help so so we're all in a bit of a state and trying to explain that to students is straightforward when you can talk to them uh, as I've been finding in the last week it's incredibly hard to write down in a concise manner So all universities are trying to find fair ways to act that are also fair to the need to measure learning outcomes, which after all is is what a degree is based on. And I think the Russell Group statement was so, it was so Russell Group because in in the, in the, one of the paragraphs it says that uh, exam boards will ensure that all students receive fair outcomes that are comparable with those in previous years. You know, if I was being cynical, I would say, well, they're just going to even out the marks so that cohorts graduate with the same degree outcomes, regardless of what the students have actually managed to attain. Um, and if I were a student, I'd be really pleased at that. Uh, but it's not a no detriment policy. Um, the, the real issue for me is not that universities will find a way to smooth things out, whether it's safety nets or or fiddling in exam boards. It's that the inequalities between students who've relatively thrived through the pandemic and students who haven't are incapable of remediation. A, a simple extension or or measuring 80 credits rather than 120 or whatever, none of that will actually help address that inequality. Mm. Debbie, I, I never thought I'd see the day when I, when I could see so many students actively engaged in a debate about degree algorithms. But here we are. <laughs> well, how, do we, how do we fix this? Um, 
I mean, okay, so a bunch of stuff universities are already doing. I mean, one one is to actually look at the assessment process itself um, and try and see how the assessment process can be designed in such a way as to give students the best possible chance to show what they have learned. Um, and I think, you know, in a, in a lot of cases, you know, it, it is a quite a sort of important spur to move on from some sort of quite old school assessment models. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the best ways to do that is through, uh, I guess, continuous formative assessment, um, perhaps kind of, you know, in the same way as, as Ofqual is kind of wrestling with about A-levels, you know, uh, look at... Um, you know, bringing in kind of, I guess, teacher assessment of, of, of how students are doing. And, and obviously, you've got all kinds of issues with bias. And it's not, you know, it's, it's not straightforward. And I think often when students are talking about no detriment and policies, and, you know, certainly when, you know, and, and yes, used to talk a lot about the, the, you know, the absolute vital importance of anonymous marking. Um, and some of this is about saying that, you know, we, here, here's where we are, what is the absolute best, you know, thing, thing that we can do. Um, and you know, and, and, and try and have that dialogue with students. And I realise I'm saying all of this in a way that sort of suggests that that's, you know, super easy. And of course, as Sue said, it really, really isn't. Um, but I don't, th- I think what's probably not very helpful is the kind of, I guess, the, um, you know, the kind of announcements and statements about, about policies that, uh, you know, talk about standards and that sort of thing, simply because, I mean, what we've just got is an awful lot of human beings wrestling with a really difficult situation. And, you know, and everybody wants the same thing. You know, everybody wants students as far as as far as possible to be able to demonstrate what they've learned. And I think there's something about no detriment is less about saying we should be able to be allowed to, uh, you know, pass exams without having learned the material. It's saying um, if we haven't learned the material, if we're not able to perform, we don't want to see, we don't want that to be seen as a reflection on our ability and our capability. And we don't want our university to see us as having failed in some way. And this is where I think kind of thinking about how to talk about these things and communicate them becomes really, really fundamental. Now, jo- Jonathan, I mean, it's great that we've got you on because you also uh, have got your eye across at schools and many of these problems are much worse in schools. It's where the DfE's focus is, so they must have some great solutions over in schools that HE can just steal right now. Yeah, that, that, that's, I mean, you've, you've, you've nailed it in one, Jim. That's, uh, that's exactly what we have. Uh, so... Well, it's, it's, it's quite straightforward, which is that in schools, it was very important that we are going to have exams up until the point where we are not now having exams. And it's very important that we have teacher judgment other than when we are not using teacher judgment. And it's very important that we don't have an algorithm other than when we are going to have standardization. So the plan for GCSEs and A-levels, and you know, stop me if this is, is confusing, is that we are going to have, <laughs> that we are going to have exams set for some subjects by some exam boards particularly those set by private schools we are going to have some things marked uh, for vocational exams and BTECs in particular where they need to be assessed for license to practice we are going to have some things set by teacher judgment that teacher judgment may or may not be standardized in a way that is not clear at the moment it's definitely not going to be an algorithm but more or less what we'd really really like is if universities could sort this all out for us please and just accept all the kids taking A-levels and BTECs this year who would like to go to university because that would more or less solve schools' problems. Uh, and that is a, a, a not entirely uh, unfair summary of where the DFE has got to with exams. <laughs> right. Well, that, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that was great. Now, 
<laughs> oh well. Now, now look, Sue. Sue, the other thing I've been picking up is um, clearly to generate an educational outcome takes two to tango, right? So students have to put some effort in, universities have to put some effort in, and lots of the statements that have been coming out from some universities effectively say we recognise that students have struggled. But I keep picking up in tab articles and tweets from students that they're angry that there's not a lot of recognition that universities have also struggled and is there something difficult that universities are finding it hard to kind of say out loud because of the kind of legal position about whether universities and their staff have also struggled to deliver their end of the bargain well that, that would be a legal issue jim and i couldn't promise possibly comment <laughs> uh, <laughs> i i think oh, well, I mean, we're getting nowhere on this podcast <laughs> i i think i think to, to try and answer your question um Universities have done a lot, but a lot of it is utterly invisible to students because, quite rightly, they have no interest in this. So over the summer, universities went through all of their courses and modules and made sure that that in the online version, they weren't accidentally, for example, going to set an assessment on something that was no longer possible to learn. Um, they, they've then issued you know, very significant amendments to, to the assessment strategies to accommodate as far as you can the fact that we can't see students. But the truth is that students want to be around staff and staff want to be around students. And an awful lot of learning goes on in those ephemeral encounters at the end of a lecture, at the end of a seminar, passing in the corridor, meeting in the library. And none of that can happen at the moment. So the the experience of learning is constrained to the face-to-face or virtual equivalent of, of the learning kind of environment. And all the rest is impoverished. But there's nothing we can do about it because short of having academics, you know, wandering the country looking for students from their own university and spreading COVID as they did so, that that loose learning that is so much a key part of being at university is not happening. And similarly, most students are learning less well from their peers. So I don't think we can pretend that university learning this year is as good as it has been in the past. For all that we might say, oh, well, you're getting digital skills and, and there's some upside. It's less good. But there is absolutely nothing that universities well, can do to, to put on, it right until on. until we can bring the students yeah, back so, onto so, campus. So universities are sort of parceling up effectively the right for students to resit or retake or submit later you know some of that is about giving people longer to achieve an academic standard and and so there is on one level or another something that can be done which is just giving people more time if the kind of bandwidth of the learning is restricted um but it strikes me that surely there are some courses i mean you've got quite you've got quite a big kind of creative arts portfolio surely there are some courses that have components that just can't be done and completed realistically until the restrictions lift yes that's absolutely right i mean what we're doing is extending the second semester right into the summer for courses like that in the hope that we will be able to give students access to facilities. But equally, that then will stop students from entering the job market at the time of year they might have expected to. Then again, my calculation is that there is no jobs market just <laughs> yeah, yeah, at the moment, yeah, yeah. particularly in the creative yeah, sure. industry. Yeah, Can we delay it as long as possible? Yeah, another yeah. well yeah, three or four years would probably be ideal. So so there are potential remediations if the vaccination programme works and we can get students back onto campus in March, for example, and then back at, back load all of the practical studies. But you know, it's one thing to say, well, as a fine art student, you might miss out on a technique that requires a lot of space or a lot of kit. But if you're a geologist and you haven't been able to do any fieldwork, it's questionable whether you've actually got the skills to graduate. And again, universities are very constrained in the way in which they can mitigate that until we can get students to the locations and the 
spaces and facilities. No, I was just going to say we're going to, and we, we'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk about the, the the skills to thrive work. But we are going to end up, I suspect, with a fairly painful but nevertheless wonkily interesting natural experiment, which is that what is it that we think that young people, both leaving school and leaving university, need? Which is if we essentially move to some version of no detriment or standardised grades so that they get exactly the same A-levels and BTECs and, and degree classes that they would have otherwise got, but have probably learned less. Actually, we can track this cohort and last year's cohort against previous and future cohorts, and we'll be able to see, because they have the same paper certificates, but probably less knowledge or less skills gained, what it actually is that does lead to success in life and in the labour market. Is it the paper certification you've got, or is it the actual skills and knowledge you've gained? It will be it will be fascinatingly interesting to tell, albeit that's not much consolation to people trying to get into the job market now, that in time they'll be part of a huge experiment that economists will love. Uh, but, it, but it is genuinely really interesting, which is what does, does it... There are some qualifications, sort of licensed to practice qualifications, for whom it's really, really important that we don't uh, standardise up and assume that these young people know more than they need. If you, if you, if you need a qualification to show you've mastered a certain level of, of, of knowledge and skill, you, you cannot uh, standardise or algorithm your way out of that. There are some subjects for which you need a basic level of knowledge that that is additive as you go on. So medicine is the obvious example. We can't have people skip first year medicine or second year medicine just to carry on to third year medicine. If you don't know the basics of it, you can't progress. There are arguably some subjects where you haven't done quite as well and you probably wouldn't have got quite as such a good grade in a different year, but you get one this year and it'll be okay. The confidence intervals and the fuzziness around whether somebody got a first or a two one and if they slightly go the other side of the border or not probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference. And, and I think that, it, but it's this type of complexity which universities are desperately working through, which schools are working through, which colleges are working through and which I fear any, any approach that says, well, look, we must have a no detriment policy or you must standardize or the OFS will clamp down on you if there's a huge amount of grade inflation. These are these are the nuances that any kind of blanket policy will just never capture because we can't treat uh, a license to practice qualification in the same way that we treat a medicine qualification in the same way that we treat, you know, to use a degree I did, a politics qualification where frankly, it didn't really matter what grade I got if I learned slightly more or slightly less. That was not critical to my labour market. And, and Debbie, we'll come to skills to thrive in a moment. But I mean, one of the contributions at our event this week was from uh, the vice president of the Students' Union at UCLan. And I thought she was fascinating because as well as this question of, you know, whether, you know, nursing students have done enough hours on the ward, she was saying that, look, one of the things that students get out of higher education is confidence you know a bit more amorphous than the learning objectives right but if if they've not been able to develop the confidence you know no wonder lots of them are saying you know I haven't learned enough you know where's my refund blah 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 when I entered university my confidence was through the floor it was in the pits I was a returning student who hadn't written an essay since GCSEs well I'd written lines but we won't go into that and I had a very poor experience in education I was told I was never going to amount to anything, and I was actually one of the well-behaved ones. But when I left my student days behind me at the University of Central Lancashire, I was a transformed person. Not the most confident by any stretch of the imagination, but I knew whatever was put in front of me, I had the skills to work through it. Part of that assured nature came through my grades, building me up year upon year. Part of it came through my volunteering experience. But a lot of that renewed confidence came through the comments and discussions that I had with staff. This year especially, graduates will go out into a very unknown world. The experience of university for the past year and a half will have made them question everything. Whilst we've all compared ourselves and our banana breads throughout this lockdown, for graduating students, 
they have compared so much more to the bone. Whilst union officers can tell students how fantastic they are, and trust me, we do endlessly, we're not the people they need to hear it from. They need to hear it from the staff at the universities who have taught them throughout and been on that journey with them. Yeah, and I think I mean anyone who's worked in an institution where well, actually, that, I was about, I was about to I was about to make a summation that's not actually accurate, so I'll caveat that. If if you if if as I have, you worked in an institution where you've got a very strong widening participation cohort, you will find that confidence is the word that students use much more than kind of skills and development and learning, and you know it's it's very much about their kind of sense of themselves there. But you know you'll also hear that, and you see that in the papers as well. There was a, there was an article just this morning about uh, you know students from widening participation backgrounds in selective and and, and uh, you know, uh, high prestige universities talking about um, how being in that environment can feel, you know, that they, that they you know, they, 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 you know, they talk a lot about imposter syndrome and, and the need to kind of um, assert their right to be there and, and, you know, think hope that it wasn't just an administrative error that got them in in the first place. And for students, this is so important. And I think actually, you know, if you look at as something that Stephen Isherwood said at the event, which he talked about, you know, when employers are look, looking to recruit graduates, one of the things they're looking for is potential, which is another kind of non-measurable entity. But in some ways, it's sort of the same thing. It's this sense of yourself as someone who who's going places, you know, who's got who's got your, you know your own personal agenda. You've got your your ambitions. You, you know, you, you're on you're on this journey. You know, you're not the finished article, but you're you know you're you're sort of ready to take on the next challenge. And and to be able to kind of assert yourself and and reflect yourself in that way back to the world does take this really quite I think quite kind of clear sort of centeredness um, confidence in. in in, in what you've got to offer. Um, so, you know, in many ways, I think everyone's talking about the same thing, but it's, um, you know, trying to really kind of get under the skin of what students mean when they're talking about being confident and what builds that confidence um, seems like a really interesting way into this uh, debate. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to ask this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Ladies- Editor, David Kerner. Welcome to the first Yes, But Does It Correlate of the completely uneventful and normal year that is 2021. The Office for Students has been looking into overall sector-wide graduate well-being, but the source graduate outcomes data is also available from HESA at provider level. I've cross-plotted the percentage of graduates from a provider that agree or strongly agree that their current activity is meaningful against the size of the provider in terms of the total number of students. What I'm wondering here is whether a smaller, friendlier, human-scale provider can help graduates find meaning in what they do after they graduate. Is this the case? Does it correlate? I think it does not correlate. With, apolo- with, with, with apologies to Sue, because I think lots of students are going to find that being in that environment is absolutely the right thing for them, but I think there's probably a stretch to say that it helps them find meaning. I, I was about to agree with you, Debbie. I mean, I, I think hopefully students have chosen an institution in the first case that will allow them to thrive individually. And I mean, I, I agree with both of you, which probably means I should tactically say the other one. But I, I suspect, given that most students self-select institutions, students ought to be able to thrive in bigger institutions because they've actively chosen one. The answer is no. There is no relationship. Positive responses to this question about finding meaning in what graduates do are mostly between 80 and 90% for most providers. There are a few smaller outliers. As a sector, we should be glad that graduates are able to find meaning in their work after graduation, and it is very interesting that there is little variation by provider in this finding. What little there appears to be is caused by a difference in subject mix. Some, but not all, arts-intensive providers seem to suffer here. 
data is from graduate outcomes and from the HESA student record. Providers are shown when data is present for both fields and I've omitted the open university to make the graph easier to read. And where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, uh, we were talking about it earlier. This week was our Skills to Thrive event. Debbie, uh, fill us in. Uh, yeah, so this week we published some research um, and then we had an event to talk about it uh, and, and the kind of wider questions that were being covered in the research. So uh, we did a survey with uh, our partners at Adobe um, last term, early last term. Um, and the aim there was to try and um, bring the educator voice into questions about student development and, and sort of employ, you know, graduate skills and employability and, and, and that, that sort of thing and try and understand what uh, educators, so people kind of working, you know, doing learning and teaching with students and supporting them to develop um, in universities feel about uh, skills. So we asked about essential skills, uh, you know, what, what the students need to be able to develop in order to thrive in their future lives, whether in the workforce or, you know, in the world beyond the workforce, um, where people think responsibilities lie for developing student skills um, and how the skills are woven into curricula and monitored um, as part of a sort of institutional programme or as part of things like formal assessment and so on. So all of that is on the site and we've pulled together some actionable insights um, so do do go and have a look. Uh, but I think, you know, thinking about the, you know, the debate that came out of it, some of the feedback we got in the survey um, and, you know, the conversations we had at the event this week, I mean, my, I suppose my key takeaways from, from this whole process is just how contentious this area is. I mean, you know, for, uh, we, you know, we've talked a lot, you know, about culture wars and freedom of speech and politics and all the rest of it. But, you know, I don't think I've ever had so much kind of uh, people coming back and saying, no, I disagree. Then when we started talking about skills. And I think this is because this topic speaks to questions about the kind of wider purpose and value of higher education. Um, you know, what, what it means to study in higher education, what you gain from that, what you're then able to do in the world. And that's, you know, that's really, I think, you know, really taps into people's kind of passions. Um, and I think it's also an area where educators might feel a little bit under siege from some aspects of the public debate. So it sort of makes sense that, that you know, that they would experience it as being quite um, something that really kind of uh, triggers them, perhaps isn't quite the right word, but, but you know, you know what I mean? Well, I, I mean, I, I can I can channel my inner Nick Gibb here a little bit, um, which is that I, 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 I always find this debate slightly unsatisfactory, I have to say. I, I suspect I'm probably, I, I don't know the, the, the balance of commentary you've had, Debbie, whether it's been sort of positive or negative about it, but but my take on this is that you know, employers since about the year dot have been saying that they value these softer skills and, and there's been endless, um, you know, World Economic Forum and, and, and other things saying that it's all about, you know, problem solving and communication and resilience. And of course, on the one hand, that is true. On the other hand, of course, I'm yet to see many major graduate employers not screened by degree class. Uh, there are some, but most employers screened by degree class and a lot screened by type of institution you've attended as well so there is a disconnect between what employers say they want and what they're using as a an actual proxy for recruitment but i suppose secondly my, my other skepticism about this is that there is a danger that this debate gets us into sort of slightly unhelpful future gazing and 21st century skills and jobs that haven't been invented yet and actually the fact of the matter is that you know, we have needed, ever since we've had a modern functioning service-driven labour market, we've needed graduates and indeed non-graduates who are able to work in teams, who are resilient, who can communicate, who can solve problems. These are not new skills. These are skills that a modern service economy has needed for the last 50 years. And indeed, graduates have demonstrably been able to deliver. That's why we have a graduate premium. That's the way in which you measure these things. If we didn't, then people wouldn't pay more money for graduates who are more likely to have these skills. But also, my final grumpy point on this is that you can't develop these skills in isolation. You know, what does it mean to think critically? What does it mean to solve a problem? What does it mean to be creative? You can only think critically about a domain. 
So part of what you learn at university in studying your subject to a large, a high degree is you learn to think critically about that domain. I think I can think fairly critically about education policy. I can't remotely think critically about art. And that's because I don't have a critical thinking skill. I know a lot about public policy making. I know absolutely nothing about art. So I can wander around the Tate Gallery and say, that's a nice picture. I don't like that picture. But I have no idea why. I can't engage with medium and brushstroke and use of light because these are meaningless terms to me. So I worry that in an effort to say that we need to teach students these skills... I worry that we divorce them from the basic and most effective way in which they gain these skills, which is through mastery of their subject. Um, this piece of work is really stimulating and I, I thought it was very impressive as well. Uh, and I think in one brief survey, you've probably taken this debate further than we managed in four years of thinking about learning gain and spending quite a lot of, money, of Hefke's money to do it. Um, I think at the end of, of saying that, what it does is highlight that the issues still persist. And to an extent, I think I agree with Jonathan that Embedding the skills in the subject that is being taught is the way to engage academics in, in this endeavour. And most academics would say they already do that. If the skills appear to be invisible to students, they stop being invisible as the student starts to write their CV. And I think the problem inherently is probably less about the attributes that students leave university with and more about the fact that we're locked in a very tired debate between employers who are bound to say that they have to do some training of graduates when they recruit them and academics who rile at that and refuse to teach to what they perceive as the employer's wish list. Mm. When we can move away from that, I think we'll very quickly be able to, to resolve this. And the resolution is not by bringing in very complicated new pedagogies. It's by probably rebalancing the assessment to value these skills as well as the subject framing in which they sit. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Do remember you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Jonathan, Sue, uh, Debbie, everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. 